0: Sky dragons are vain, arrogant creatures.
1: I head over to where they're working. I say, hey, how are you guys doing? Those little ones letting you get any sleep?
0: When the
2: gardeners would plant the tulip bulbs. And in the springtime for the opening of the tulips, he loved the opening. We love summer! It's time for the Appleseed,
3: filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's always such a pleasure for me to share these stories with you. We are going to have a great hour today. We're going to begin with a story about the sky. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, and my mom used to lie on the grass of the front yard with me. We had a big front yard along distance from the house to the road. We would lie out there sometimes and just look up at the sky, look at the clouds, and we would see pictures in the clouds. In fact, it's from my mom that I first learned to see pictures in the clouds and turn my attention up there and see all of the things that there were. Uh, Most of those things, of course, just in my imagination, right? But those clouds really look like stuff sometimes, don't they? Even now when we're driving along, my wife will points to a cloud and say, good heavens, it looks like a Whatever it is, right? And I'll look and see and we'll talk. And the sky is such a wonderful place to get our imaginations going. This is a story of the sky and the things in it. And, of course, it includes a couple of dragons, brothers, who are filled with all kinds of good qualities and all kinds of bad qualities, too. The storyteller is Sophie Snell, and the name of the story is Sky Dragons. We're happy to begin with this tale here on the apple seed.
0: sky and admired the vast blueness of it, or watched as clouds sweep across, hurried along by a brisk wind, and chased by leaves, caught up in the air, tossed in swirls. I used to watch the clouds racing. Every one was a different creature, an elephant, a bird, a great whale that rose and sank beneath a sky-sea then a castle and mountains, a whole land floating above me, peopled by fairies and giants. The best time for watching the sky is first thing in the morning, or when the sun sets at night, for then the whole sky burns with colour, delicate pinks and azure blue, fiery orange and crimson red. There are dragons fighting, my mother used to say, And one day, I begged her to explain. The sky dragons are vain, arrogant creatures. Their long bodies and tapering tails have no legs. Their wings are long too, with hook-like claws, and their necks stretch from their bodies to merge into slim, delicate heads. They look more like serpents, twisting and sweeping through the sky like giant wisps of smoke. There are only two now remaining, the east dragon and the west, the last of the sky dragons. You'd think they'd be friends. Oh no, two worse enemies you'd never meet. They were friends once, but their vanity made them foes. They are brothers, you see. And like brothers, they grew up tumbling and sprawling in play, chasing each other across the void, hiding behind clouds, nipping the other's tail, laughing and teasing like two puppies under a mother's watchful gaze. And they were both so beautiful. The east dragon was the elder, a deep verdant green with polished scales, his exotic eyes curved up below long lashes, soft spines along his back allowed him to twist and turn so his body curled elegantly around the clouds like a vine about a tree his brother the west dragon was a vibrant red brash and loud his roar could fell a thousand trees sending the birds flying up clattering in shock he had bright yellow wings and red and gold markings He looked like a giant flame as he swooped low over the ground, then climbed swiftly back up. The east dragon was gifted with the power of water. He could draw the seas up into a massive wave, or lift whole rivers and throw them back down over a cliff in a giant waterfall. The west dragon had the power of fire. Vast flames shot from his snout. Blasting whole forests, turning valleys into deserts, the air heavy with smoke. Then the day came when their mother told them to seek out their own homes. The brothers gathered where the night sky met day, where the bright pale blue of day deepened the rich purple of night. I'm the eldest, said the east dragon so I get to choose first. He swooped up through the clouds, curling his tail as he spiralled back down, eyeing the beautiful islands of the South China Seas below. No way, called his brother, beauty first, and he flew high in the sky, under the sun, so its rays caught the red gold on his back and bounced a rich glow. His body turned into the sun to catch the light once more. He had his eye on the great mountains of Europe, snow-capped and cutting through the clouds like giant teeth. "'Well, if it's beauty first, that's me anyway,' called the east dragon, giving his tail a provocative flick, moonlight shining silver against his polished scales. The west dragon growled, "'You're as ugly as a dead half-eaten fish, a smelly slime ball with googly eyes and girly eyelashes.' All you can do is splash water. And what about you? sneered the east dragon. You're just a great ugly lump, all bluff and no bite. A ghastly red saw, like yellow pus from an open wound. He gave a mock shiver of disgust and turned away in disdain. The west dragon roared in fury, leaping onto his brother's back, digging his claws deep into those polished scales. The east dragon twisted in pain, great teeth snapping back, burying them into his brother's neck. A vicious grip. Thus fastened onto each other, they rolled in the sky, over and over. Flames shot out as the west dragon tried to scorch free his brother's grip. Torrents of water sprayed around them as the east dragon's flight took them just above the sea, his wings beating the salty seawater up around them, blinding his brother's eyes with the sting. Stinking swamp snake, yellow-bellied dust worm, putrid pickle-face, goggle-eyed muggle-head, bottom toadweed. But neither creature could win. The two dragons flung insults, flames and water at each other all night long. By morning, every flower, plant and tree was covered in a fine spray of water, And the sky strewn with pink and red flamed clouds. Exhausted, the dragons fell apart. They flew to opposite ends of the sky to nurse their wounds. By late afternoon, they were renewed and eager for fight. As the sun sank towards the sea, they clashed again, gnashing and yowling, spitting and growling. Fire lit the sky, steam hissed on the horizon. And so it went on, every night. The brothers could never agree who should come first. And their battles lit the skies with red and orange, pink and purple, every morning and every night. The water, sprayed by the east dragon, covered each plant with early morning dew. The fire from the west dragon blossomed the early morning mist, which hung low over the land. And they fight on to this day, hurling insults, water and flames, two vain creatures, unable to admit defeat, unable to pause, to think, unable to share the vast skies of the world. So when you see the fierce red evening sky or the delicate pinks of morning dawn. Somewhere over the seas, or high in the sky, or above the mountains, the west and east dragons are fighting still. Stinking swamp snake, yellow-bellied dust worm, putrid pickle face, goggle-eyed muggle head, zit-bottom toadweed...
3: Storyteller Sophie Snell with a story called Sky Dragons. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. We're going to bring you an entry in the Radio Family Journal about something a little bit more domestic than dragons. It's an entry in the Radio Family Journal about an aquarium full of fish. And of course, we're gonna hear stories from Jay O'Callaghan and Dolores Hydock, related because they're both got flowers in them. Dolores Hidock is gonna tell us a story called My Own Backyard. And Jay O'Callaghan is gonna tell us a story about a grand French woman who grows tulips, is famous for growing tulips, in fact. And of course, we'll hear a story from Michael McCarty as well called The Power of Love. There will be lessons in that tale. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed.
1: You're listening to The
0: Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this episode of The Apple Seed. A moment ago you heard a story called Sky Dragons, a story told for you by Sophie Snell. And uh, in just a little bit, you're gonna hear stories from Dolores Hidock and Jay Callahan and Michael McCarty. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about an aquarium full of fish And I'm happy to bring it to you as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
4: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: I've always liked having a pet around the house. And while I know the world is sort of divided between dog people and cat people, I was always both. And even more, seems like there was often a dog in my childhood, and often a cat, but just as often a goat, or a steer, or a parakeet, or a couple of finches. I've always liked to share my space with another animal. Maybe you know how that is thing is, sometimes some sorts of animals are possible, as pets and others aren't. For example, I rented for a while in a place that didn't allow dogs or cats. It seemed imprudent to ask the landlord how he felt about goats or steers. So I got a little 10-gallon aquarium and put a couple of little platies in there and a couple of snails, too. I was, to be sure, a little nervous about it. I'd never kept fish before in any kind of serious way. And I almost didn't do it because I thought I probably wouldn't be good at it. And for dang sure, there are a lot of people who know fish better than I do. There are a lot of people who know platys better than I do. They can tell a blue wagtail from a high fin sunset variatus. Not me. The platies I bought, I bought because they were called Mickey Mouse platies, and they were called Mickey Mouse platies because they have markings on their tails that look like Mickey Mouse silhouettes, a large dark circle with two smaller dark circles above it where Mickey's ears go. I mean, who's not going to buy a fish with a Mickey Mouse head on its tail? I loved my fish, and my landlord was okay with them too, and I was pretty good, I guess, at taking care of them, as evidenced primarily by the fact that they were still alive a few months later, and as further evidenced by one kind of miraculous morning when I went to sprinkle a tiny bit of food into the aquarium, and what was that? What was that? Something moving, just skittering over the rocks down at the bottom of the aquarium. I got my glasses for a better look. At first, I couldn't make myself see again what I seemed to have seen a moment before. But after a few seconds of staring, yeah, there was something moving down there. In fact, there were a whole bunch of somethings scooting around down there. About a dozen tiny little orange commas were darting in and out of the fronds of the fake plants stuck in the rocks. I was a dad, or I felt like one. I mean, look at those little guys. I started to worry about them. Worried, actually, about whether the other fish in the aquarium would enjoy eating them. I tried to create places for them to hide down there in the aquarium. I put more plants down there, primarily. And over the next few weeks, those fish began to look less like commas and more like fish. Born and raised at my place, I never had so much fun. People would come over to the house and I'd walk them into the kitchen to take a look, show off my aquatic progeny. Everyone was impressed, or at least they acted like they were. Soon, those fish were big enough to feed themselves. I learned that a fish at this stage of development is called a fry, and then sometime later you could see their fins working away, and you could see their little scales, and I learned that a fish at that stage is called a fingerling, and then before I knew it, they were fully as long as their parents, and of course I had to find other homes for some of them. They like a little elbow room. But there were a few of them that stayed, like Charlotte's spider children in the book Charlotte's Web, to delight me as I sat next to the aquarium and watched them. The Mickey Mouse markings on their tails were a little less distinct on this new generation. The shape a little muted. It's how you could tell them apart from their folks. And that was two generations ago. Two more broods have miraculously appeared in that aquarium over the years and it still sits on a shelf in my office. The population of the aquarium changes from time to time, but there are still a few descendants of those first platys who first came to live in my rental house as a concession to the pet tolerances of my landlord. The snails, too, have multiplied and replenished the aquarium, and everybody seems as happy as clams. Once, I wasn't very good at keeping fish. I didn't have a good handle on how much to feed them or how often. I worried that the water was too hot or too cold. I found myself getting out of bed in the middle of the night to check on everyone. And there were sometimes little belly-up signs of my incompetence in those early days. But because I liked those little guys, I stuck with it and I got better at it. That's the way of doing things, isn't it? doing a thing teaches you to do it and you move from not being very good at it to being better and i look at the fish in my aquarium now filled with color and a degree of variety a little ecosystem in there and a pretty balanced one at that and for sure one that has delighted me as i write at my desk and as i watch those little guys i'm glad i didn't talk myself out of getting an aquarium just because I thought I'd never be good at keeping fish.
1: The Radio Family
4: Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Coming up, we've got uh, a story from Dolores Hydock. It's got kind of a domestic title. It's called My Own Backyard. But there are wonders back there, and you won't want to miss that tale. In the meantime, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course through the things that happen to us, the stories that we tell from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories get down into our hearts and minds and the shape they take once they're there is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. I'm joined by New York storyteller Kate Dudding. You've heard her her on the show. She joins me now from her home. Kate, it's such a pleasure to have you with me on The Appleseed.
4: Thanks for asking me, Sam.
3: You know, we have had you on the show before to share memories that you have sort of carefully made the effort to write down. You know, uh, to capture in a certain moment, as we've talked about with you before, memories have a way of kind of shifting under your feet as time goes by. And capturing some of our feelings, especially about the people who are important to us, is be, becomes such an important exercise, right? Oh,
4: yes. It's... Uh... Just because people have died doesn't mean your relationship doesn't continue developing.
3: That's right. That's right. And, and w- what a blessing it is as time goes on to have captured some of the things that we've felt and remembered about some of those people who are gone from us now. Uh, and, and, and you've done that with your relationship to, well, to a lot of things, but certainly to your father.
4: Yes. Here's one of my stories about my father. Whenever I see a boiled potato, I think of my father. No, he wasn't famous for making potato salad. The story goes this way. As a teenager, whenever my mother served boiled potatoes as part of our dinner, I would say, ah, why did you make this? You know I don't like boiled potatoes. You know I only like mashed potatoes. My father would always reply, When I was your age, after high school, I worked in the AMP grocery store boxing groceries. And because I worked there, I was able to bring home for free stale bread. My family was happy to get that. And I always thought, Yeah, 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 here's the boiled potato uh, lecture once again. Let's fast forward 30 years when I'm in my late 40s, a new storyteller. And I had arranged to tell stories to a third grade class every month to get practice. I remember telling them my story, my first family vacation. I got to the line, my parents never went on family vacations when they were growing up because it was during the depression. And I looked at their little faces and every single one of them was confused. And I went, oh, Right, this is the first time I've told this story to kids. And of course they wouldn't know what the depression is and how am I going to explain it to them? So to give myself a little extra time, I asked even though I didn't expect an answer. Do any of you know what the depression was? And Stephen raised his hand. Wasn't that when everyone was poor? I said, thank you, Stephen. That's an excellent definition. And before I knew it, My father's boiled potato lecture popped out of my mouth, ending with, and my family was glad to get the stale bread. And Stephen said, gosh, they were really poor. And for the very first time in my life, I realized they were really poor. How did I miss that? But I wanted to think about that, but I had a room full of third graders, so I had to go on with my story. But later that day, I thought, how had I missed that? Oh, I was a teenager. I was self-absorbed, and that's how I missed it. Growing up during the depression, having the responsibility of putting food on the table as a 16-year-old, I said, this must have shaped my father in some way. So I thought, and I went, oh, of course. My parents almost always saved first and then bought something. For instance, The mahogany hi fi stereo, or my mother's good china, and even their cars. They did have a mortgage, of course, and they had a Christmas club. Every uh, paycheck, my mother would deposit some money in the Christmas club account. So in December, she had money to buy the Christmas presents. But you know what? For breakfast, every day my father ate bacon and eggs with fresh store bought bread. So now whenever I see a boiled potato, I think of my father and I think of Stephen, the third grader, who helped me to see through my father's eyes and to recognize some of his struggles and his triumphs.
3: Kate Dudding sharing with us not only a, a memory of her father and some of the stories that he told about his young life the 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 potato lecture right maybe there's some version of the potato lecture <laughs> in just about every family right but uh, but but also the story of this wonderful moment in which an elementary school student is able to provide her all unwittingly some insight into her own family kate what a wonderful memory
5: that is
4: Oh, yes. And, and that was, I mean, I was 47 or so then I'm 70 now. So I still remember that day very clearly. They were really poor. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it seems now like an obvious thing to miss, you know, an obvious thing, a, a thing that ought to have been included in your in in your outlook of of the stories mm. of your dad, you know, but we we miss some of those things and and we'll continue to miss them unless we listen, you
4: know, and I share this story. I think of it as one of my epiphany stories, yeah, that and maybe it will spark an epiphany in someone else yeah
3: (laughs) it's such a pleasure to have kate dudding with us to find out more about her wonderful work as a storyteller you can visit her website katedudding.com kate thanks for joining us on the apple seed
4: it's been my great joy to do that
3: great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with storyteller Kate Dudding. Lots more coming up. Stick around for Dolores Hodock with a story called My Own Backyard here on The Appleseed.
4: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
3: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne, it's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Kate Dudding, and now a story called My Own Backyard, in which Dolores Haddock talks about the wonders that exist right under our noses, just a few feet away from us. It's a terrific story, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed.
1: Seed. <music> It was a Saturday in early March, several years ago, one of those kind of Saturdays when the sun has come out after a long, gray, miserable February, and you cannot bear to be inside one more minute. I had lots of work I had to do, letters to write, emails, but my laptop was going to let me take all that outside. And so I gathered up my computer and my glasses and pen and paper and headed out to work on the black wrought iron table there in my back porch. First, though, I just had to put everything down and just go walk through the yard, just feel the sun on my face and neck and shoulders. Ah, it was so gorgeous. So gorgeous, the plum trees, the pear trees profusely in bloom, those tulip magnolia blossoms. Gosh, the blue-eyed cypress, look at that thing. It must be 20 feet tall. It must have grown five feet over the winter. I remember it was so little when it went in the ground. A housewarming present from my friend Linda, who knew when I moved into that house, I needed trees more than I needed a toaster. (laughs) In fact, I look around the yard and I realize how many things there are gifts from people. There's the coral azalea from Marie. There's that pink angel face rose from Carl. There's all those Japanese maples that David grafted and grew and gave me and dug big holes, brought in sacks of topsoil and mulch. There's the curved concrete bench that my mother gave me. I can picture her sitting on that bench when she would come to visit, sit there looking up at that bird that she swore sang a song. It sounded just like it was calling my dad's name. Peter, 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 Peter. <laughs> I hear hammering next door. It's my neighbor, Jason. He's building a fence around his backyard, a fence made of long wooden slats with a curved top. They kind of look like giant popsicle sticks. He started the project weeks ago, and when I first saw him working on it, I said, so are you walling things in or walling things out? Oh, just trying to keep the kids and dogs from running off, he said. He's got one more side to finish, the side that divides his yard from mine. Adam. Is helping him Adam is another neighbor lives further down the street Adam and Jason they do a lot of things together they have a lot in common they're both in the 30s they're both dads Adam has two kids Jason has three they're not just both dads they're both dads of newborns baby Allison is just three months old little baby Wren was born two weeks ago I head over to where they're working I say hey how are you guys doing those little ones letting you get any sleep Jason says, oh, not much. I've been up since 4 a.m. Adam says, four, you lucky dog. Wren started crying at 2 in the morning. I never was able to go back to sleep. I say, you guys, between the two of you, don't have seven solid hours of sleep and you're out here with chainsaws and power tools? (laughs) Jason holds up a bright green soft drink can. We're fueled by Mountain Dew and sunshine. (laughs) Lauren, Jason's wife, comes out the back door, cradling three-month-old baby Allison in her arms. Their two little boys, aged four and six, are scooting figure eights in and around her legs before they run up to the back of the yard to go visit the chicken coop with the two chickens, Monkey and Juice. (laughs) Lauren heads over to a clothesline where tiny white cloth diapers flutter in the breeze. The clothesline is right next to a rainwater collection tank that feeds into the vegetable garden. You can still see the little green tops of carrots and kale from the winter garden. Lauren makes her own yogurt. (laughs) April, Adam's wife and mother of their two children, April does not make her own yogurt. April relies on Huggies and Happy Meals and kind of hopes for the best. April is trudging up the hill on the other side of my house, trying to keep up with their two-year-old daughter, Lark. That's her name, Lark. Lark is running up the hill, scaring the cat, bending over to sniff a tulip that has no smell, then plopping down right in the middle of the street so she can examine an excellent rock she found there. (laughs) April has little two-week-old baby Wren. That's his name, Wren. He's in a snuggly so she can hold him close. I haven't seen the newborn yet. She brings him over for me to admire. I look at his little face, so red and fierce. Those eyes squinted shut. He looks like a miniature Mr. Magoo. (laughs) And as I look at that tiny, determined little face, I think, this child might see the 22nd century. He'll be in his 80s when the calendar flips to the year 2100. He will probably make it. And it's so strange to think I am looking at a child who will look on a world that I will never see. April takes off up the hill trying to intercept Lark, who has just turned down the alleyway chasing a bee. (laughs) I sit down at the table, flip open the laptop. The cat jumps in my lap, insists on having his head scratched. Then he hops over to the other chair, circles the green and white cushion twice, then flops down, curls up a little fuzzy igloo that rises and falls as he drifts off to sleep. I hear kids' voices calling to each other as they ride their bikes up and down the street, their voices high, harmonizing with the notes of Scott Joplin's The Entertainer, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da played over and over by the ice cream truck that roams through the neighborhood. I hear Jason and Adam next door, one of them is saying, hey, this next one needs to be exactly six feet, two inches. That last one fit. Oh, not so much. Darn, it reminds me of that dumb joke. The guy says, oh, this stupid board, I keep cutting it and cutting it. It's still too short. they laugh. The Mountain Dew is kicking in. (laughs) Ordinarily, Lance would be helping them with this fence project. Lance is the 30-something single guy who lives on the other side of me. Lance, Adam, Jason, they do a lot of stuff together, but today, Lance is getting ready for a cookout he's having for some friends in his backyard later that evening, and so Lance is busy. Lance is marinating. (laughs) Lance is a wonderful cook. His vanity license plate says, Chutney. (laughs) And so Lance is cleaning the house and setting up folding tables and chairs in the backyard, and while he works, he is listening to The Door's Greatest Hits. A 30-something guy listening to a rock band from the 60s. Come on, baby, light my fire. He's got it cranked up really loud so he can hear it outside and I can hear it too. That song comes pouring out through the screen door, through the sunshine, across the street, over to my back porch. And that husky Jim Morrison voice and familiar keyboard riff, Take Me Back back across time, back across geography, back to another Saturday morning, a gray, drizzly September Saturday morning. I am in my bedroom in my parents' house in Redding, Pennsylvania. I am 19 years old and I love the doors. (laughs) I am ready to light somebody's fire. (laughs) I'm ready to have my fire lit too baby light my fire (laughs) the song swirls out of my stereo as I sing along and stuff the last few items into the small black suitcase that will accompany me for the next 12 months it is the September after the summer of my sophomore year in college, and my college roommate Julie McSweeney and I are heading off to Europe for a year. We had just finished up sophomore year as students at George Washington University in downtown Washington, D.C., and that sophomore year, that freshman year had been crazy. March on Washington, strikes against the Vietnam War, tear gas in the streets. It had been so confusing, not just politically, but academically, too. In just four semesters, the two of us had burned through six different majors. (laughs) Julie started out in mathematics, moved to sociology, ended up in modern dance. I went from political science to pre-med to theater and drama. We both had to admit we didn't have a clue what we were doing. So we decided we were going to stop, take a break, travel, see the world, find ourselves, figure it out along the way. Armed with two semesters of French, (laughs) two semesters of German, and two 19-year-old sense of invincibility, we were heading to Europe for a year following a man, a man who had us both, a man who made promises we both believed, a man named Arthur, Arthur Frommer, who told us we could do it on $5 a day. (laughs) I do not remember the conversation where I told my mother about my plan. I do not remember telling her that I was quitting school. Julie and I were going to fly to Frankfurt, Germany, buy a VW Beetle, drive around for a year. I don't remember telling her that. But I must have. I do remember that I never had that conversation with my dad. My mother cleared the whole thing with him. He and I never discussed it, never said one word about what I was planning, where I was going until that gray, drizzly September Saturday. Come on, baby, light my fire. The doors (laughs) revolved through the final chorus of that song. As I switched off the stereo, shut the lid, picked up my suitcase, took it downstairs, my dad slung it into the trunk of the gray Chevy Caprice Classic, and off we went, my mom, my dad, and me, heading for Dulles International Airport, where I would meet Julie, and off we would go. We were all pretty quiet. (laughs) in that three-hour drive down I-95. Even my mom, she always talked on car trips. I mean, she would read out the billboards if she couldn't think of something to say, but even she was quiet. (laughs) We got about 20 miles away from the airport. My dad caught my eye in the rearview mirror. He said, Schluggo, you're going over there, and you think you're going to find a better way to live, but I think what you're going to find is that everything you really want is in your own backyard. And that's all he said. He looked away, asked my mom to check the exit. 15 minutes later, we were at the terminal. There was Julie. The adventure began. What was he talking about? (laughs) There were worlds to see, people to meet, life to be lived, adventures to be had. I didn't know what he meant that day. I didn't know what he meant that year. I didn't know what he meant for years to come as my little life followed its path, twisted and curved. I don't think I really understood what he meant until that sunny March Saturday. Sitting in my back porch, the birds chirping, the sun shining, the flowers blooming, the neighbors hammering, the kids playing, the cat purring, the computer humming, the grill smoking. I have a sweet house, a safe place to live. I have work that I love to do and people like you who let me do it. I am surrounded by gifts that remind me there are people in this world who somehow love me. I have good neighbors who protect their families and feed their friends and believe enough in this tired old world to bring determined little babies into it. I have a cat who helps me keep things in perspective, reminds me daily, I am not the center of the universe. (laughs) Home, work, family, friends, hope that the world is going to be okay. That there are people coming along who will figure it out. I finally get it. My dad was right. Everything I really want is in my own backyard.
3: Great Alabama storyteller Dolores Hydock with a story about her backyard and the wonders that are there and the wonders that exist in our lives if we'll only look around and think about them and enjoy them. Up next, we've got a story called Tulips. You know, we heard about a backyard full of things like flowers. Here's a story about a grand French lady named Madame Lafarge, famous for her tulips. It's Jay O'Callaghan telling the story, and you're going to enjoy every word. Here's Tulips on the
2: Appleseed. This is the story of Tulips. Madame Lefarge was a magnificent old woman. She lived in the centre of Paris in a mansion. And Madame Lefarge was famous for her tulips. Everyone loved her red tulips, but no one more than Madame Lefarge. Some time after her husband died, she wrote a note to her grandson, Pierre. Pierre, you were invited for the opening of my tulips. She thought of Pierre as... Her little tulip. And Pierre was delighted. He was only four years old. His mamma brought him to the train at Nice and said, Your grandmamma is a formidable woman. What does that mean? You'll see. Pierre was put on the train and he bounced from Nice to Paris. The chauffeur picked him up, brought him to the mansion, and Pierre had tea in the study with his grand And then they went to the great room, and she looked down that long face and said, Pierre, are you ready for the opening of the tulips? Yes, grand She nodded her head. The servant drew the curtains, threw open the French doors, and Madame Lafarge and Pierre stepped out into the sunlight. And Pierre... (gasps) Gasped, for there was a great rectangle of five hundred red tulips dancing in the sunlight. <gasps> exactly, Pierre. After that, Pierre came twice a year. He would come in the fall when the gardeners would plant the tulip bulbs, and in the springtime for the opening of the tulips. He loved the opening and he loved playing tricks. The servants, when he was eight, would say, Pierre's coming. Hide the cats, hide the dogs, hide yourselves, hide the cookies. Pierre, 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 for Pierre loved playing tricks. He would get there and he would tickle the cats. He would chase the dogs. He would find the cookies, eat them all, and play tricks. Once, when the cook was snoring in the kitchen, Pierre filled the cook's slippers with porridge. He bought the cook new slippers, but he went on playing tricks. Another time when his grandmamma was out chopping, Pierre said to the servants, my mamma said to take a bath, and I will. He pulled the wooden tub right into the front hall, the beautiful front hall, filled it with soapy warm water, ran to the top of the stairs, and slid all the way down the banister. Right into the tub, splash! Just then his grandmamma came into the great hall. and She looked at this mess and said, Pierre, wash behind your ears. He kept on playing tricks, and when she had the party, it was a tea for two hundred people. Pierre was underneath the table. Two of the servants, they were bending down to lift the trays full of teacups, and Pierre was under the table tying the shoelace of one servant to that of another. Everything, of course, went a tumble, and everyone was upset except his grand because Pierre never played a trick on her. Well, now he was nine, and he was thinking it's time. Everyone's afraid of Grandma but me. It's time to play a trick. At that very moment, he was looking out into the garden. It was fall and the gardeners were planting the red tulips. Ah, he knew the trick. He ran down and said, Grandma Mare, uh, I'm uh, running around the corner. I'll be back. Yes, Pierre. Yes. Pierre went to the florist two blocks away. He bought one black tulip ball. Three o'clock the next morning, Pierre crept out into the middle of the tulip garden. He reached down and took out one red tulip bulb and put in the black tulip bulb. And all winter he thought about it and laughed. (laughs) In the spring, he got the invitation, got under the train, bounced all the way to Paris. The chauffeur was there. and His grand was in the back seat. Pierre, it's been very cold. The opening is delayed three days. We shall go to the country. Yes, Grandma Mare. So they went to the country. Pierre played with the village children, tickled their cats, and finally they motored back to Paris. His Grandma Mare looked down that long-faced Pierre. you fidgeting. Calm down. I'm excited. So am I. Grandma I've been thinking maybe one of the tulips would be a different color from the others this year. What do you mean? Well, things happen in life. Not to me, they don't. Well, I'm willing to wager my gold coin. Pierre reached in and took out his gold coin and held it up. That at least one of the tulips will be a different color from the others. I don't approve of wagering. All right, I'll take you up this one time. Good grandmame. They got to the mansion, had tea in the study. They went to the great room and she looked down the long nose. Are you ready for the opening? Yes, Grandmamma. She nodded her head and the servant drew the curtains, flung open the French doors. Pierre and his Grandmamma stepped out into the garden, and Pierre, he gasped. There was a great rectangle of 500 black tulips. He looked up and he could have sworn she winked, and she was smiling. Nice for a change, isn't it, Pierre? yes grandmamma the gold coin if you don't mind yes grandmamma he gave her the gold coin although she put it under his pillow a week later he never played another trick on his grandmamma and that's the story of tulips <laughs>
3: <laughs> Tulips, a story told for you by the very wonderful Jay O'Callaghan. It's always such a pleasure to hear a Jay O'Callaghan story. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from Michael McCarty, a story called The Power of Love. It may help you think about some of the relationships in your life, especially some of the relationships in which you may be having some trouble. Here's Michael McCarty on the Appleseed.
5: The Power of Love. In 1988-89, I was traveling around the south of India, going to temples and ashrams and doing my own spiritual thing, getting my spiritual groove on. So some friends of mine showed up at a town called Pondicherry to visit the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. An ashram sort of like a spiritual training camp. We arrived by bus. We got to the bus station, and my two friends went directly to the main ashram hotel, the park guest house. I told them I'd meet them there in a little while. I wanted to roam the town a little bit. I wasn't worried about getting the room. It was the hot season in the south of India. 120 degrees in the shade. And the guidebook said, at this time of year, you didn't have to worry about getting the room because nobody in their right mind would be there except me and my friends. So... After roaming the town for an hour or so, I went to the Ashram Hotel, the park guest house. As I'm walking up the steps to the lobby, I notice that this elderly Indian woman gave me a real dirty look. And then she says something to the man sitting behind the desk. I went up to this gentleman and he says, can I help you? I said, yes, I'd like a room. We don't have any rooms. Now, there are keys all over the board, up, down and sideways. And I say, well, did so-and-so and and -and so-and-so check in? asking about my two friends who just happened to be white. He looked and said, yes, they did. Now, I'm picking up on something, duh, but I don't want to believe what I'm picking up on because I'm at an ashram, a um, spiritual kind of place, but I maintain my spiritual equanimity. I said, well, when will you have some rooms available? He said, maybe in a couple of days. I said, okay, I go check into another hotel. The next morning... I meet my friends in this hotel restaurant, and we're having breakfast. And I see another guy I know who had come by the hotel after I'd been by there, and he had gotten a room. Well, I maintain a positive attitude. Some rooms must have suddenly become available. So I go to the lobby to check it out. There's that woman sitting behind the desk and wanted to give me a dirty look the day before, checking some people in. I stand off to the side, waiting for her to take care of her business, and she looks at me and says, what do you want? With attitude. And I said, well, I came to see if you had some rooms available. She said, no, we don't have any rooms for you, and this isn't just some hotel. This hotel is for people who are coming for the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. Like, I'm halfway around the world, and I don't know this. So now I am... (sighs) Through with this town, and this place, and this ashram, I just say... I decide to leave the following evening. The next morning, I come back to have breakfast with my friends in this hotel restaurant. It's the only place in town with whole wheat toast. I'm a whole wheat toast kind of guy. So, as I'm walking into the restaurant, I am physically barred from entering and told that I have to go to the lobby and get this woman's permission to go in. Time out. You're talking about your former 60s militant type. I know how to yell, scream, cuss, and fuss. Ain't done it in a while, but I still remember how. But I maintain my spiritual equanimity. I go to the lobby. There's that woman again sitting behind the desk. I said, Madam, is there some problem? I'm just going to have breakfast with my friends. I was just in here yesterday. May I go in? No, you wait in the lobby. Oh, it's all now. I'm getting ready to raise some cane up in here. And as I'm working myself up, All of a sudden, I hear this voice in my head, this is a test. It's easy to love those that love you. The test is to love those that hate you. And I figure this woman qualifies. Now, you must understand, love was not uppermost in my mind in terms of things that I wanted to send her. I can think of a hot, fiery place I would love to have sent her and joyfully use my size 12 to help her get there. And then I was thinking about maybe the Fred Sanford kind of love. But then I remembered what I'd read about auras, the energy that surrounds every living thing. And I remember reading that pink was the color that represented divine love, and I figured we definitely needed some divine love up in here. So mentally... I envelop her in this bubble of pink light and I started pumping pink at her butt. I'm pumping pink, I'm pumping pink, I'm pumping pink. I worked up a sweat pumping pink. I did this for five or 10 minutes. Suddenly, the woman comes over to me. Totally different demeanor. Totally different tone of voice. Are your friends in the restaurant? Now I'm from Chicago, we would be suspicious. So I'm looking around, seeing if I'm getting set up. I said, I don't know. You wouldn't let me go see. Oh, she said, go, please go. And she personally escorted me into the restaurant. And as I was walking into the restaurant and looked back at her, smiling sweetly at me, I realized I had experienced the power of love. Now, this was 1989. In 1992, I would become a professional storyteller. I told this story at Community Storytellers in Los Angeles. And after that meeting, people were coming up, oh, Michael, that's a wonderful story. That's a wonderful story. And I am someone who was not uncomfortable receiving praise. But this one friend seemed to be particularly moved by the story. She said, oh, Michael, that was a really wonderful story. Well, a few months later, after this same meeting, my friend comes up and she says, Michael, Michael, let me tell you what happened. It seems that at her job, her boss had made it her personal business to give my friend unholy hell each and every day. On this particular day, my friend decided she was going to do the pink thing. She would send her love. If not love, she would send her like. If not like, she wouldn't send those, I want to choke you around your neck thoughts. You do the best you can. So she'd been doing that all morning. At lunch, all the employees were together in a little lunchroom. My friend sitting, talking to someone across from her, the boss sitting next to her, talking to someone else. Suddenly, the boss turned to her and started to engage her in pleasant, complimentary conversation. And from that day on, there was no more mess between them. The power of love. Now, I'm going to fess up. I think I passed that first test, but I have flunked quite a few. But it is worth the effort. And that's the end of that. Michael McCarty
3: with The Power of Love here on The Appleseed. Such a pleasure to bring you that story, along with stories from Dolores Hydock and Jay O'Callaghan and, of course, Sophie Snell, who we heard at the top of the hour. And we can't wait to have you with us again for another hour of The Appleseed. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to see you again.
2: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll
4: see you next time.
3: Hi, Sam here. Just one more thing before we go. We want to invite you to join BYU Radio, the folks who bring you The Appleseed, for a month of service from September 20th to October 16th. We'll be asking our listeners to collectively complete 10,000 acts of service. Now, you don't have to do all 10,000 acts of service yourself. There are listeners all over the country who will be happy to help. Now, participating is easy. Number one, just get out and serve. Anything from taking cookies to a neighbor to picking up trash at a local park anything. Number two, tell us about what you do. You can visit byuradio.org service to shoot us a message about the acts of service that you're doing. And we might choose your story to feature on the air. You can tune in to BYU Radio to hear what others are doing. Now, the slogan for this campaign is bring it. It's got kind of a double meaning, right? A confident response to the service challenge of 10,000 acts of service. I mean, we say bring it to that. And also bring it as in bring what you have and serve. Bring your enthusiasm, bring your interests, bring your talents, bring your hunger for change, bring your cans of food, whatever you've got that you can bring. There's a service opportunity that will be right for you. So come be a part of something big and wonderful as we serve together. Visit byuradio.org service to learn more. Thanks.